Do you have what it takes to finish the race? I'm not talking about winning the race. I'm just talking about do you have what it takes to finish the race? What if the odds were stacked so against you that you were starting at the back of the pack? Do you still have the attitude, the mental fortitude to stick it out to complete the race? That's what we're going to dive into in this new podcast episode. Welcome to the Russell Westcott Podcast, helping real estate investors like you acquire the inspiration, knowledge, and skills that you need to start, grow, and scale the real estate investing portfolio of your dreams. Hey guys, how's it going? Russell Westcott here. So brand new podcast episode. I had a wonderful opportunity to have an amazing conversation with a very good friend of mine, Mr. Jules McKenzie. And if any of you have heard Jules's story, uh, maybe on another podcast or a video or a webinar or something, first of all, you will find out that this is probably one of the most inspirational stories you will ever hear. But here's the cool thing is I think we went into some topics that Jules shared that he has not shared in other platforms and other formats. Uh, the one thing you will find is interesting to know. So quick backstory. Um, when I start doing a lot of these really in-depth um, interviews, what I call standing on the shoulders of giants. And Jules is truly a giant if you ever get a chance to meet him. I always like to do them in person. I always like to do them in person because you get to, you know, feed off the energy. You get to have a better connection. I do a three-camera video shoot. If any of you have seen any of my um, videos of the standing on the shoulders of giants, you know the quality of that. Jules and I have been trying to get together uh, to do one of these episodes for better part of probably well over a year to a year and a half. I finally just said, Jules, we just need to do it on Zoom and we need to do this online. But let's not do this like anyone else. Let's not do this like every other one you've done. Let's go deep. Let's go really deep into the story. Let's go really deep into the backstory. Let's get really deep into the into how you were feeling. Let's get really deep into the lessons for people to uh, have. Now, one of my mandates that I've had with creating my podcast is to do something a little bit different. And that is get into a lot more depth. And that is to get to know the people behind the real estate investors. If any of you have followed some of the um, interviews I have done, or if you've been a subscriber, hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, please subscribe, please leave a review, you will find that we go deeper. We go deeper into the people. You know, not only do we teach the tacticals and the how-tos, we actually go more important, in my personal opinion, more important into who the person is. Who you become in the process of being a real estate investor is more important than how many how-to tactical strategies you know. Because at the end of the day, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter what part of this place you're on this journey, no matter where you go, there you are. And if at the end of the journey, you look around, you go, geez, I don't like who I am. I don't like the person I'm staring in the mirror. Then all that work, all that uh, effort, all that uh, training you've done or all that work and all the investments you've done is gone for naught. Okay, so be very mindful about who you become in the process. And that's really what we dive into here. So that's a little bit of the backstory context. But what here's the thing I want to share with you. This was so deep that, honest to goodness, we blocked off an hour and a half for just doing one episode, which probably would have been more than, a, you know, we I thought would have been more than enough. But then as we got going and going and we just, even just the backstory of Jules, where he grew up, you know, no running water, the hatred, the bigotry, the, the, the name calling, all the challenges that he went through just in his upbringing and the decisions that he had to make to change change his uh, situation in life. 
that in and of itself was just such a long conversation. We were an hour in already. And you just, I just had to say, you know what, Jules, we haven't even got to the real estate side of things. We have to pull a, a timeout. Let's wrap this up for this one. And then let's commit to do a second interview. So what you will find is this is a two-part interview. In part one of this two-part series, uh, Jules and I go really deep into the backstory. As I mentioned, we talk a lot of his upbringing. We talked a lot about overcoming some obstacles. We, co- we cover a lot of his upbringing on how it has shaped his future destination or where he is now as a real estate investor. Then in the second part, which I highly encourage you to subscribe to get the second one, instant notification, it'll be coming out right after this one is where we dove more into the real estate side of things. And you know what? I thought that, uh, you know, all the obstacles he faced was in his personal upbringing, where he came from. And I'm not going to give any of the details of the story. You need to listen to this. And, and like I said, I thought all the obstacles he faced was in his upbringing. You should hear some of the obstacles he faced when he started investing in real estate. Now, I'm not going to get into all those details because Jules and I go very, very deep into that. So guys, Um, If you're enjoying these conversations, please provide some feedback. Please reach out to Jules, maybe send him a a thank you card. Uh, Let us know if if this is really resonating with you because bottom line, when I was going through this and I was sitting there, maybe it was was funny. It was on one of the days I was having a little bit of, oh, woe is me. I'm having some challenges. I have this issue. I have a vacancy. I have this portfolio challenge. I have a little bit of challenge. And then when I started talking to Jules and he just laid out the challenges he was had to overcome, man, I had no challenges. And I think that's one of the big things you guys will get from this two-part episode. So guys, with all that being said, please help welcome to the podcast, Mr. Jules McKenzie. Hey, Jules McKenzie, welcome to the show today. How are you doing today, brother? Fantastic as always, Russell. Thanks for asking. How are you? Oh, Jules, you know, couldn't be better. You know, and, and the reason why I'm saying I couldn't be better when I was... Looking at my calendar today and I saw our conversation was upcoming, it put a smile on my face. So well, that's good. You know, anytime I get a chance to have a conversation with you, Jules, and I'm I'm sorry if this sounds like I'm, you know, pumping your tires or whatever, but I, I truly feel like I'm a better person after we've had oh, this I conversation. Appreciate that. Yeah, likewise, uh, yeah. Russell. It's always very insightful and educational and entertaining to have a conversation with yourself. So here, here's the question I can ask you as, as a starting one is, um, and I was going through my show notes and my prep and everything like that today. And um, how long has it been? When did we first meet? How long has it been? Funny you mentioned that. I was making myself a coffee and I was thinking, how long have I known Russell? Because I know it's been quite a while. I would uh, guess I was actually in the room when you approached uh, Don Campbell about uh, doing uh, or accepting your resume and you said, I have a conversation. I have something I want to talk to you about. And Don says, actually, I want I have something that I, I need to talk to you about as well. And that was in Toronto. And I'm guessing that was 2005, yeah, 2006. I, yeah, that's probably 17, 18, pretty close to 18 years ago. No, maybe. Yeah. Wow. So look at listen to us us old guys here with our memory lapses or something. We maybe need to start getting some 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 supplements and some vitamins to help uh, get that memory going again. Something hey, like that, yeah. <laughs> so for those of you that if you are listening to this on podcast, um, Jules and I are doing this on Zoom, and it's wonderful. Normally, I like to have these ones what I call standing on the shoulders of giants. I like to have them in person because we can have a better connection. But you know what? This year it's just been a little weird. So technology is fantastic. And and speaking of of connections, um, Jules, when was the last time you've been called Jules the Tall? Jules the Tall. I think you were the last person to call me that. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, I, we have to be careful here that we don't have some of these side jokes that only Jules and I will probably know. Yeah. <laughs> or, or I also want you to remind everybody of your mandate, Jules, about how you're planning to take back this country one title at a time. I'm um, just following the footsteps of my uh, father, who was the chief on our little Indian reservation in Western Quebec. Yeah, and I'm I'm out, I'm off the territory, and I'm buying back all the all the reservation land one title at a time. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's a perfect actually segue into the story here. Now we're going to do a little different in the story, and I tell stories a little bit different. We're actually going to give the ending of where you are today, and then we're going to go back in time. So, so Jules, I saw this wonderful post and it just warmed my heart when I saw that you and Ange have bought this brand new lifestyle property. Tell us about your latest venture that you're working on. So actually the property was built in 1889 and it was so back, when, back when we were both born, right? Yeah. yeah. Back when, when I was uh, just getting into this business. Um, it's a, uh, uh, a Victorian style home. It's about uh, just under 5,000 square feet, and it was previously run by uh, Lee Johnson and his wife as the Kavanaugh Spa, and they kept the Kavanaugh name because it was the Kavanaugh family who uh, immigrated to uh, Canada and this location in particular and built this house. So Ange and I bought it from uh, Lee Johnson, and we are going to keep the Kavanaugh name because I think that's uh, only uh, the right, uh, respectful thing to do to uh, honor their uh, heritage and their perseverance. Um, and we're going to call it the Kavanaugh Bed and Breakfast. And this, for us, is going to be our ultimate house hack and uh, my one one uh, aspect of my retirement plan. Nice. So this was a dream of yours and Jules was uh, yours and Ange, wasn't it? Well, uh, my dream was financial independence through real estate investing. <laughs> Angie's dream uh, somehow came up that she wanted to uh, invest in a bed and breakfast type property. So um, while our goals and objectives and uh, dreams are very much uh, intermingled, uh, commingled, um, this is kind of her pet project. And she's definitely taking the lead on it. She's out doing some general contracting right now with the, the guys and uh, seeing through some projects uh, within the house and outside the house. Yeah. But uh, th this particular aspect, this particular project was hers. I, I bought a little commercial property earlier this year. And uh, thanks to COVID-19, I wasn't able to rent it out right away. But as a result of uh, COVID-19, um, there was a uh, hair salon that kind of is kind of letting go some of their uh, stylists. So three stylists got together and said, hey, how about that commercial space that's uh, vacant? Why don't we open up a shop there? And, uh, you know, I've been to and froing with the, with the lawyers and their lawyers uh, just to get a commercial lease drafted up. And it looks like I got a, got a deal closing this week on uh, renting out that commercial space. Yeah. Thank goodness, because I was about five $600 a month upside down without the commercial tenant. Hey, did you did you negotiate free haircuts? Uh, well, I don't have a lot on, on top there much anymore. I could probably just buzz it off myself. <laughs> I was about to make the joke, and yes, that's my dream too—is to own a hair salon. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so I would be remiss, Jules, if I did not um, please pass along a big hug and kiss to to your lovely wife Angie for me. Um, she's Absolutely. such an amazing lady, and, and I'll tell you what, you you prescribe to the same path I do of marrying somebody way above <laughs> above what we deserve as spouses. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah, if it wasn't for our spouses, we both would be, I don't even know, I don't even, I actually am frightened to think where I would be without Kareen in my life. It'd be scary. Uh, without Angie in my life, I'm, I mean, I'd, I'd be happy to uh, rent a bed in the corner of somebody's garage. Like it, <laughs> I just wouldn't have any ambition at all. Yeah, nice, nice. And it looks like you have pets in your in your office there too, just like I have a... That's- that's our grand, our grand pet. Yeah. Uh, that's my son and his girlfriend's dog. And then uh, my dog is just outside the door. Yeah. Um, so she's a little more obedient than this one. Right. I got a, hang on. I got a snoring, farting dog underneath my desk here too. So, <laughs> so with that being a wonderful segue, <laughs> Jules, you had mentioned, so we've talked kind of where you are today. So it, it didn't start out this way, did it for you? You, you have a, a very non-traditional, um, upbringing and a non-traditional path of you getting there. And I just want to put one caveat here is um, I'm going to ask you some of these questions, Jules, and my entire intention of this asking is, and I will 100% agree that I don't know a lot about the lifestyle. I don't understand. And and I would say that I'm a little bit ignorant when it comes to that. And, you know, there's a big buzzword around privilege and stuff like that. And I would 100% agree that I have privilege of my upbringing of what I've had but I'm a firm believer it's there's a lot of stories that can be told in the process of what we're doing on this journey, become successful real estate investors. So I'm going to sit back a little bit and I'm going to ask lots of interjecting questions, but tell me a little bit about the backstory where things started that has be some relevance for the human journey that you're on as a real estate investor. Okay. So uh, I'm originally from uh, Northern Quebec. I'm from a little, uh, First Nation uh, called the Cablewack First Nation in Kippewa, Quebec. It's on the uh, just off of the uh, Ottawa River, uh, just um, east of Timiskaming, Quebec, which is the home of Timbeck. And um, I was born into a time uh, when the FLQ crisis was still fresh in everybody's mind. FLQ, just for the French uh, language Quebec okay. uh, movement, okay. French Liberation uh, Quebec movement, and uh, they were uh, a small group of people with radical ideas uh, seeking uh, independence from uh, the uh, federal regime known as Canada. And uh, it was just a lot of time of turmoil. Um, The English versus the French, the French versus the indigenous, the indigenous versus everybody. It was just, uh, it was just a crazy time. You're you're describing uh, the past, aren't you, Jules? You're not describing today? I'm not describing (laughs) today by any means. And, you know, and, and uh, you know, it, it's one of those things, right? Like uh, I've, I've uh, because of my career and uh, because of my uh, chosen path in investing in real estate, I've, I've managed to travel the country. And uh, sometimes there's a little bit of rivalry. There's a little bit of a disconnect between the East and the West. But uh, I like to think that uh, guys like, uh, like uh, you and us, are uh, trying to bridge that gap and uh, make this country a little more united than uh, what it has been in, in years gone by. Yeah, and and as you say, you're you're taking back the titles one or properties back the reservations one title at a time, right? One title at a time, and I'm happy to rent them back to you, uh, white peoples. <laughs> So, so tell us a little bit about the upbringing. I imagine it's, you know, 
you know, I grew up in really small town Saskatchewan and, you know, my wife grew up in metropolitan city and she can't believe some of the things I would tell about our, my childhood and going to be able to play with anybody and go across the street and, you know, skate down the, the, the street in the middle of winter to go to the outdoor hockey rink and, you know, just stuff like that. But I imagine it was a different story where you grew up. So I grew up, uh, on the reservation, um, my uh, my ancestors originally from Hunters Point, Quebec, which is at the uh, north uh, east uh, uh, corner of Lake uh, Kippewa. And uh, in order for us to have our rights, our hunting and fishing rights, which was my father's passion to uh, fight for, uh, we had to uh, get uh, corralled up together and uh, live on a tiny Indian reservation on the shores of uh, of Kippewa, Quebec. And, uh, my father was the band, uh, was the chief of the reservation. My mother was the band manager. They, uh, got a generous, uh, CMHC budget from the federal government for 30 houses to house 300 people, which is the total membership back then of the, uh, Kabowek, uh, first nation. And, uh, as you can imagine that math don't work so good. So my parents had to make a a lot of tough decisions and I bore the brunt of those uh, tough decisions because there were some people left without housing. Um, it took many, um, I don't want to say many years, but it took a few years to get uh, hydroelectricity. It took a few years to get the houses built. It took a few years to get uh, running water and uh, the proper uh, uh, water sewage and sanitary services put in. You know, and uh, if that wasn't enough, um, we went to uh, French uh, Roman Catholic school in Temiscamingue, Quebec, and we would get into a few of these with uh, the, the French uh, Quebecers who uh, didn't appreciate us taking up their space. And uh, conversely, the my white Anglo English friends would just kind of sit on the sidelines saying, "Oh no, don't include me in this, please." <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was kind of a, a time of turmoil. It was a time of, um, you know, some, some racism. Um, there was frustration and, you know, I remember during an election period, my, my dad, uh, was holding, uh, holding our door closed and had a, was, uh, seated in his Chesterfield with a shotgun on his lap because we didn't know if somebody was going to bust in at any moment and try to take us out. Um, that was kind of the environment that I grew up in and, uh, I didn't dare venture too far off the territory without, uh, you know, either my brother or some friends, because that would be, uh, that would be a silly thing to do. You get beat up and hurt pretty bad because you were stepping out of where you're supposed to be. Wow. Now, now we're taught, we're not talking the stone ages here. We're talking just mid seventies. I would imagine is the time frame uh, we're talking. Is that correct? Well, yeah, the late seventies, yeah. uh, early eighties, right. um, eighty four. Uh, I was probably around sixteen. Um, eighty five, I was seventeen, and I just uh, remember looking down at the end of the dirt road because uh, on the reservation it was all dirt road, gravel, uh, a little bit of gravel, but mostly dirt road, and um, just looking at the edge where the asphalt started, and wondering what would be for me on the other side, uh, on the asphalt side of that road. And, uh, I'd been to North Bay, Ontario a few times with my parents. And, uh, back then it was, it was a journey to get, uh, down there and do shopping and, and whatnot. And, uh, I always 
you know, was just kind of fantasizing about living in an environment where I wasn't uh, actually, uh, you know, I, I wasn't seeking to be coddled or cuddled. I just wanted to have a fair shake like everybody else and have a chance to uh, make something of myself and wondered what that could be. Yeah. And uh, I remember my last, um, I guess the last year that I lived on the res with my dad, my mom had passed away uh, earlier in the year when I was 17 years old and my dad kind of banging his fist on the kitchen table saying, son, it's the richest, it's the freest, it's the most incredible country in the world. Now go out and just do something good with your life. Yeah, it's all about the choices and decisions, correct? Yeah, and I really believed him at that time. I I really uh, respected him and looked up to him. He was a war veteran of World War II, and he was in power on our little reservation for probably about 15 years. So that's all I'd ever known was him to be doing that. Yeah. Well, now I would imagine now, what was it like to, you know, like I'm saying, I I don't know and I don't fully understand. Um, But that's why I want to have this conversation, respectfully have this conversation is what was it like and how did it make you feel or how did it shape you with that racism? And I imagine you were called every name in the book and, you know, just stuff like that. Like, how did that shape you? Uh, We were called savages and, uh, you know, that was very hurtful. And, uh, you know, it really made me feel belittled and uh, below everybody else. And uh, nowadays, you know, through a lot of uh, recovery and a lot of um, counseling and a lot of work on myself, you know, I like to use uh, the word savage when I'm at the CrossFit gym. <laughs> I, I, you know, I see some kind of a, a, a fitness apparel line or something, and, and Jules McKenzie sponsored by Savage FX. Savage. <laughs> <laughs> and then talk about how you've used your circumstances to elevate yourself as opposed to be a victim of it. Absolutely. Like you talk about privilege, and uh, to me, um, white privilege is, is probably a thing. I, I don't really know uh, for sure. But uh, I like to think of privilege as more of an advantage. And in my, my particular case, um, I had an unfair uh, advantage. And uh, at the time, I didn't recognize that. You know, I was uh, socially awkward. Um, I was naturally an introvert. Uh, but I had, uh, I had uh, brief moments where I was uh, outgoing, uh, charismatic, um, and I had very strong investigative skills in that I would want, want to learn something uh, completely inside out and not just learn it, but actually apply it and master it. Yeah. And uh, I believe that those, uh, those skills were, are my, my unfair advantage. Yeah. You know, when you talk about privilege, I'm privileged with having the ability to, to overcome obstacles and challenges and grow from them. Yeah. But, you know, and it's funny, you know, speaking back with about my wife, she actually shared this or turned me on to this video. And I think it was a school teacher that kind of showed with, they did an example of what kind of privilege and things like that would be. And, you know, raise your hand if you have both your children, uh, both your parents. Okay. Take two steps forward. And then eventually they got people to, you know, based upon the more things they had in the life, how many of you have, you know, a hot meal or how many of you have money in your pocket? And those people just got to start a little bit ahead. And so all these kids were staggered along there and they go, okay, now down there at the end is the goal. Now we're going to have a race. And there's some people that were starting for significantly further behind the other kids. And, um, and you, you had 
something where you were really starting quite a ways behind other people when with when you were on your whole journey, were you not? Yes. Yeah, I, I would say that's a fair statement. Yeah. So so what was the difference? But you know, so but then here here lies a question is what was the difference between you and I imagine you had good good buddies and friends on the reservation. Like what was the difference between you and your neighbor buddy, and, and maybe you can give him a name if you want, what was the difference between the choices and the things that you did versus the person that didn't get off the reservation? Ah, uh, that's a, <laughs> that's a tough one. But, uh, I, 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 uh, consider, uh, one of my best friends, uh, Greg, let's call him Greg. Okay. So, uh, Greg, uh, got to hunt and fish with, uh, his parents. Uh, they still had a, a camp, uh, set up in uh, our ancestors' uh, historical territory up at Hunter's Point. And uh, he could hunt and he could fish. He could clean fish. He could uh, he could uh, clean a moose and cook it. And uh, I wasn't able to do that because my parents were both very busy uh, working full-time. Um, contrast that with uh, the fact that uh, my parents uh, occasionally took me on long trips with them to either Ottawa or uh, Quebec City or uh, even as far away as uh, Victoria, B.C. Uh, when I was a lot younger. So I, I was able to get uh, a look at uh, the outside world and uh, start to uh, figure figure and, and wonder if I could actually fit in uh, out there. Um, Greg, unfortunately, didn't, didn't have that opportunity. And... Um, my parents had to make a lot of tough decisions because of their leadership role. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of families that, uh, my dad, uh, for lack of a better term, pissed off because he didn't give them a house. And, uh, growing up, I was the very much the youngest of five children. My brother's 15 years older than me. I was a bit of a surprise as you can imagine. And, uh, you know, I got picked on a lot at, at uh, on the res, and then I got picked on a lot at, uh, at school as well. So, uh, man, that's, uh, that's a lot to conjure up and, uh, dig up. Well, I, and when you say a surprise, I would, I would say you were a very good surprise, by the way. <laughs> so <laughs> hey, Russell. yeah, no worries. Uh, Hey, so, so really what was the, what was it? So really, if I could just, maybe I'm just going to bookend this for everybody. If you are listening or watching it, it, it came down to, um, you had some role models, some coaches and some mentors, and I'm going to use coach and mentor. It was just dad. Let's just call it dad, right? Yeah. Dad challenged you to think a little bit bigger outside of your situation. Okay. Yes. You also, you changed the environment by going and seeing something else. You actually got to see that there was something outside of the reservation. There was running water. There was, you could flip a switch on the wall and the lights turned on, right? Yeah. And it really did came down to probably choices and decisions, which, um, Talk to me about the decisions that were made for you to eventually leave the reservation down that dirt road to onto the pavement. Like what a perfect metaphor, right? <laughs> it totally, it, yeah. it's, it really, it really comes down, down to that. And, uh, you know, there was, there was some people that, uh, uh, are just comfortable in their circumstances and they don't, uh, they don't want to venture out, uh, outside of that. I had a huge desire to, to see what, uh, was out on the outside world and, uh, what part I could play and how could I participate in the outside world? And, um, 
Uh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. No, there. I, no I'm just going to, I'm going to echo two things you said. Your, your, your focus was not on yourself. Your focus was what role can I play and what can I contribute to others? Right. I think that might be one of the starting points is what can you offer to others? That might be the starting point for you to leave a situation, because if you were just mainly just thinking about yourself, you might not have ever left because you would have been thinking of yourself and have been, oh, woe is me. Look what's happened to me. This sucks. And all of a sudden now you're going to start learning how to 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 uh, quarter the moose and fillet the fish and be like Greg. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, nice. So, so what was uh, when when did you leave the reservation, and what was the part of the the story there? Because this is an, uh, a very pivotal mo- moment as well. So I left. Uh, my my sister, uh, who's next oldest to me, she's ten years older than me. She had uh, was in her second or third year at uh, Carleton University in Ottawa, and uh, my father suggested maybe I go stay with my sister down there and see see what it's like in the big city of Ottawa. So I did that. And, uh, I transferred high schools to Brookville high in the South end. And, uh, I don't know if you recall, uh, the, uh, the initial, the original crocodile Dundee movie oh, yeah. where, uh, That's he goes out on Did his you, walk. So you're about. telling me you had a knife and you pulled out a big giant knife. Down there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I carried a knife. No doubt about it. Uh, hopefully the statute, the limitations have run out on that, but I did, um, the uh, thing about that was I remember the first time uh, getting off a transit bus in downtown Ottawa, on Bank Street South. I was trying to literally say and be polite to every single person that I seen on the street and uh, saying, hello, good afternoon. Hello, good afternoon. And it was just virtually impossible to do that, of course. Yeah. But there goes uh, there goes my experience. Right. Like yeah. I, I had no idea that there would be that many people. Uh, kind of corralled into one spot, you know, trying to take uh, take advantage of uh, the one bus on this mass transit system in the big city of Ottawa, because yep. otherwise it's 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 kind of hard to get around with a car. Back then, it's uh, the it's the late eighties, early nineties. Um, you know, it's not uh, it's not feasible for some. And um, yeah, it was it was quite a culture shock. Yep. Uh, I will say the first time I walked into an arcade was in the big city of Ottawa and oh. my mind was just completely blown. Um, saw MTV for the first time on a, on a, on a television and uh, just, just lost my mind. What, I couldn't what believe was that. The, uh, what was the first video you saw on MTV? Uh, Do you know, Jules? I think it was, uh, I think it was Van Halen oh. and uh, it was the jump video. Yep. And I, I just couldn't believe it. And the the big uh, thing about that was they said it cost them 500 bucks and a case of beer to make that video. And it just blew my mind completely. Yeah. And, and, and how things have changed, eh, Jules, that uh, kids nowadays walk around with these contraptions in their hip pocket and have uh, every video ever made and every song out there at a, at a moment's notice, eh? And it's an encyclopedia in their pocket. Like if they need to know something, they could just uh, type in a question or physically ask the phone a question and it will come back with an answer. Yeah. yeah. How about us? Us old, us old, us old timers here reminiscing about the good old days. And we're talking about the mid eighties. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really. So do you go back to the eighties music when you have a chance to listen to the. Absolutely. <laughs> That's what we have to, if we ever have a choice, if we like have a serious XM or satellite, whatever, it's always eighties on eight. Yeah, I usually tell everybody in the truck if they're all with me, I'll say, okay, meanwhile, back in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Jules. So, so moving to Ottawa, um, did you do your high schooling in Ottawa? 
I did, but I dropped out, unfortunately. Oh, tell me about that. I wasn't familiar with that. So, um, my you marks kicked out or anything. Were you Jules? No, I wasn't kicked out. Okay. Actually, no, no, I wasn't. Um, my mother had passed away while I was, uh, you know, going to high school in Ottawa. And, uh, I got, uh, I don't want to say I got hooked up with the wrong crowd, but I got hooked up with a, with a crowd that I hadn't really been involved with before. Um, the, uh, the preppy, uh, for lack of a better term, the preppy white dudes didn't really want to have anything to do with me. Um, you know, I was, I was mostly hanging around with, uh, kind of nerdy, uh, don't really fit in well type people. Uh, one of my best friends back from high school was uh, a black guy named Bo and, uh, he was actually a uh, mulatto and, uh, I think he still is. And, uh, we're still friends today. But uh, I think he took pity on me because he could tell that I was socially awkward, um, not really uh, wise to the ways of uh, the 80s and uh, how to fit in. And he just kind of took me under his wing. And, you know, we did some really cool things. And uh, me being me, uh, taking things to the extreme the way that I did, you know, I probably uh, took uh, partook in a little bit too much excess in uh, let's say certain herbal substances and, uh, alcohol and, uh, skipping school and, you know, just going out and seeing what's, uh, what's about and around in the town. Yeah. So, um, unfortunately I fell behind, um, and I eventually, uh, dropped out. I, uh, I remember drinking too much and my, my, uh, sister telling me that I actually fell up the stairs when I lived with her, I lived in the attic of uh, a rental house that she had on a Polydor Avenue in Ottawa, South end. And, uh, she said, you fell up the stairs. I could hear every step that you took upstairs and, uh, I essentially woke up in my own vomit in, uh, in my bed. And, uh, I remember, uh, a short time after that, my brother, um, my old, my, my old, he's my only brother. He came down from Sudbury. He, uh, this is a guy who was working in the pulp and paper industry for probably 10, 11 years and decided he was going back to uh, university to get his degree for teaching. And, uh, my sister probably had a conversation. I went along the lines of, Oh my God, he's at it again. I don't think I can handle him. Why don't you come and get him and see what you can do? <laughs> So my brother came down. I, all I remember was, was, go pack your bags. You're going to come with me. We're going to Sudbury. And that'll, that'll, and that'll toughen. Going to Sudbury will toughen anybody up. Oh, yeah. It did. <laughs> it did. Uh, so I went from that to, uh, to Cameron College. Um, he put me, yeah, he, he, I would say it's fair to say that he put me in the uh, adult upgrading program. And that was a program uh, for people that were, uh, didn't have a high school diploma. And, uh, I, I, I actually mastered that program. I, I had a brief stint of, uh, some sobriety and, uh, uh, clarity and, uh, actually took my education serious and, and, um, you know, got my, 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 uh, equivalency to a, a high school diploma and got accepted to, uh, the general arts program at Cambridge college. Wow. Wow. Now, I had a little snicker a little while ago when you were telling your story about when you talked about being socially awkward. Um, if any of you have ever had the pleasure, and I mean, it is a true honor and a pleasure if you get a chance to meet Jules McKenzie in person. First of all, how tall are you, Jules? 
Uh, probably, I'm probably more like six, three now. I'm starting to shrink a bit of my old age. No, you're, you're a big guy. Like you're tall. I'm not a tall, small guy. Yeah. Yeah. A big, tall guy. And if you yeah. ever, if Jules is ever in a room, he's the kind of guy you want in the audience when you're doing a presentation because <laughs> Jules is in the front row and he's going, woohoo, he's cheering away. And it's like, it's, it's, it's like a dream audience to have all Jules McKenzie's like, you're one of the most outgoing, friendliest people I've ever met. And it is truly an honor if you get a chance. You Let's put it this way. You, if you meet Jules, you'll never forget him ever. Like you're just that kind of a person, right? Thanks, Russell. Thank you. So, so you, you, you went down to Sudbury, you, you've, you know, you partaked in, you know, uh, a little bit of, let's call it, let's call it the politically correct thing of calling it experimentation of, <laughs> of things. That's a fair statement. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess now it's legal, right? All that yeah, kind it's of stuff. legal now. So it's marijuana yeah. is what it is. And, and it's kind of ironic of a lot of those things that led you into a career choice that you eventually went into. So let's talk about from from the GED to um, probably your your the career that you were in. And there was a couple pivotal moments in there as well that you shared before. Absolutely. So um, I got my got into the general arts program, general artsy fartsy kind of stuff with a native studies option, and I got a B in native studies of all things. Uh, <laughs> I got, you um, weren't very good at it. Not very good at it. <laughs> not very good at this education thing. Um, but I was going to help the people and save the people just like my father. And, uh, I ended up taking a, a program in my second year, third year, um, called the native child and family care worker program, which is essentially a, a counseling program. And I was learning how to counsel people because I was going to save the people. And, uh, I took that course and started to realize, yeah, I'm pretty good at talking to people, pretty good at counseling people, but I don't think that this is for me. And, uh, I did, I left it out in my backstory, but, um, because of the amount of picking on, I, I, ex- I experienced, uh, back on the res back at my parents' house. I remember my father would drive me to the YMC in North Bay and I started martial arts. When I transferred my high school to Ottawa, I went to Duveris Martial Arts, which is a Greek guy, but he absolutely mastered the art of uh, Gojuru Karate. I did that for a couple of years. And when I went to college in uh, Sudbury, I joined Gold's Gym. And there was uh, a few nights a week that uh, you could come out for open mat. And open mat simply is whatever style of martial art whatever style of uh, uh, grappling, whatever style of wrestling, whatever you like to do, there's a, there's a whole group of, group of guys that like to do that with you. And uh, we kind of learn from each other and, and roll and, and do those kind of things. And I did that for, for a couple of years uh, while I was going to college in Sudbury. One afternoon, um, I went in to train. I was just doing a regular workout session with weights. And uh, there was three or four guys that I worked out with that were much older than me. And I was, uh, I remember reading an article in the, uh, Toronto, uh, the Toronto star in the classified section. And it was, uh, an article by the Ontario provincial police and they were looking to hire recruits for the recruitment drive. And I remember running this by my workout, uh, buddy saying, you know, how's that OPP thing? You know, like, uh, what kind of career would that be? Like, and the guys just lit up their eyes, just went wide. And they're just like, wow, you know what? You would be really good at that. Like, uh, I'm like, really, you think that I would be good at that? Yeah, absolutely. I said, well, how do you know that I would be good at that? Because we're all members of the OPP and, uh, they worked in Dowling detachment and Sudbury detachment. 
And they were, I didn't even realize it, that they were cops, but they were cops and they liked to train and work out in their, in their spare time. Um, so lo and behold, um, I went to the, uh, detachment in the, uh, South end of Sudbury. I went up to the old staff sergeant and he had uh, gray hair and he had his glasses kind of down like that. <laughs> and, uh, I had uh, long, you know, uh, business in the front, long in the back. I had, he had a, a mullet. You had a good yeah. mullet. Yeah. Did you have, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had my choker on, um, which is a native thing. And I went in there. So I'd like to apply for the job of uh, police constable with the OPP. And, uh, the receptionist says, Oh, really? Just a moment. And she went back and not, didn't just grab like another cop. She grabbed like the staff sergeant, the guy that's in charge of the whole outfit. And he came out and looked over his glasses at me and said, so son, son. Oh, oh, the best of, and they always call you this. They call you son, right? Now, son, you want to join the Ontario Bridge Police? And uh, I was like, yeah, absolutely. And he brought me back to his office and we actually sat down and had a very candid and forward and direct conversation about uh, policing in Ontario as an Aboriginal person. And uh, lo and behold, he helped me fill out my application. And six months later, I was on my way to the uh, OPP Academy. Back then, it was in Brampton, Ontario, another big friggin' city uh, in the greater Toronto area. And what, what year did you go into the Academy? So I went into the academy on November 6, 1989. I remember just like it was yesterday. Oh, it almost is. <laughs> <laughs> 1989. So you've been you've been a, a proud member of the OPP since? Uh, well, yes and no. Okay. So yes, I was uh, a member of the OPP up until 1998 uh, when I transferred down to Rama, um, which was back then called the uh, Menjikining First Nation just on the uh, east side of uh, Lake uh, Kutiching, just east of Aurelia. And uh, I was brought in as uh, one of the OPP officers with experience. I was going to coach the new uh, First Nations officers that were part of what would become the Rama Police Service. And uh, I coached four, ga- four guys back-to-back. Uh, a coaching of a new recruit usually is, uh, usually is a 12-month period. And it's, uh, I coached four of those guys in under two years. And after having a near nervous breakdown, cause I wanted to do a good job, the, uh, uh, the police board chairperson and the chief of the first nation, uh, uh, asked me if I would consider, uh, you know, patching over to join, uh, the Rama police department. And I said, well, you see, I have a safe, secure government job with the Ontario government. So what could you possibly offer me? Not realizing that 70% of the budget came from the revenues of Casino Rama. Casino Rama is uh, probably uh, at the time, the second largest employer in Simcoe County. And uh, I could have asked for the sun and the moon. I probably would have got it, but I simply asked for wage parity and to carry over my uh, years of seniority and they said, yeah, for sure. We could give you all that. What can you start? Yeah. So, and, but you uh, want, you wanted, it's like been anything in your life. You wanted to earn it. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to earn it. Um, I, I, um, I'm not looking for a handout. I didn't, uh, I'd rather have a, you know, a helping hand up than a, than a handout. And, uh, I remember that afternoon calling Angie saying, Angie, how do you like the uh, area? She says, Oh, I think it really is beautiful. I think it's great. It's so good because we might be here a while. <laughs> I'm about to sign on to uh, join the Rama police and leave the OPP. Yeah. And you, you and, fell in love with the area. 
Yeah, we did. And if yeah, anybody has ever been there, it's not hard to do. Yeah, it's gorgeous. But, but we'll just keep that our secret, eh, Jules? So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. There's a lot of people fighting out now. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, especially with people leaving all those downtown Torontoers that are making their way out your way. What did I just read recently as uh, how much the, the growth of all the small towns and single-family houses, uh, you know, they're at all-time high of sales numbers and condos and downtowns and stuff like that are all-time lows at the moment. Yeah, they're dropping off. Uh, the condominium market in uh, downtown Toronto is, is, is dropping off a bit, yeah. you know, and it started uh, when uh, the pandemic hit in uh, mid-March yeah. when they closed up all the Airbnb properties. The Airbnb properties were converted to long-term rentals. Long-term rentals uh, that go vacant for a while usually draw down on a on the value of uh, the underlying property. A lot of those people uh, thought, well, I can I can rent for cheaper outside of the area and I don't have to commute to work anymore. Yep. So I'm going to go up to Aurelia or yep. I'm going to go up to the South End of Barrie yep. or I'm going to go up to Gravenhurst or Huntsville or Bracebridge or any number of little small centers yep. that uh, previously we didn't really have that much action. But now there's a, there's a lot of action. Yep. And and I, I already hear the people listening to this podcast or watching this video going, finally, real estate. What a transition. They are going to talk about real estate. Now, now guys, I, I'm a firm believer in, I actually think it's more important about the people we become in the process of becoming a real estate. And that's why I love to have these conversations with the people of what shape, everything that Jules talked about of his background, of his upbringing, of being bullied, of being Mick Dundee walking through uh, Ottawa, saying hello to everybody, shy, awkward kid going into the Cobra Kai dojo. I'm, I'm making, I'm joking with that one. Um, meeting the OPP people, all those things shaped your experiences leading up to you becoming a real estate investor. Did they not? Absolutely. Yeah. Now we are, and I'm also going to sense, I'm sensing we may have a part two to this conversation where maybe part two jewels. So I want to be respectful of your time because you do need to go work out here. You, you mentioned when we first got started, you need to go hit the gym. Um, so why don't we do this? Why don't we make a commitment that we will book a second conversation, you and I, and the second one will be 100% all real estate. But there's a couple more things that I want to talk to you about the backstory leading up to you becoming a real estate investor. Okay. Russell, I'm happy to have a conversation with you anytime. <laughs> well, that's just, I just, Jules, I'm, I have to be brutally honest. I just want the bromance to continue. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, now share with me, there was one other um, pivotal moment that you shared a little while ago. And I think we, we maybe brushed, we, we didn't quite get to it where it, it led to a decision that you've made into sobriety. And I think that was a, a really important lesson and something I think you should share with the audience here. Okay, so uh, every once in a while, um, I would take things to excess and uh, without, uh, without logic or reason, I, and, and I didn't understand what the problem was. You know, everybody was coming down on me saying, well, you drank too much. You said something really aggressive and awkward and it pissed off everybody in the room. And I was, I'd be like, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't understand. And I would uh, go, go through periods of, of abstinence from alcohol and, and substances and uh, everything was all right. So once the heat was off, I would go back to my old ways and uh, you know, um, get back into the same, uh, rabbit hole again. 
And uh, it wasn't until I, I actually got on the OPP. I was in my first posting up in uh, Armstrong, Ontario, which is uh, about a three-hour drive north of Thunder Bay. And uh, once again, just out of the blue, I suddenly I'm in a bar. Next thing I know, uh, a fellow colleague is knocking on my door. I'm a trader. I come out, there's smashed glass everywhere and broken furniture. And he's uh, pissed off and angry with me. And he's got a goose egg on his, on his, on his eye. And he's saying, look at what you did to me. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Like, what, what are you talking about? And there was these three guys. They weren't, uh, they weren't regular members of the OPP. They were part of the Gull Bay First Nations Police, which was just south of Armstrong. And they were all happy. And they were together and they were clean and they were well, you know, as apart from a bit of a language barrier, they were very well spoken and, and knew the content they were speaking of. And they gave me these helpful suggestions. Well, you got to take things one day at a time and you got to be easy, does it? And they gave me those little brochures and these little uh, questionnaires with 10 or 12 questions like uh, something about I might be an alcoholic. And I agreed wholeheartedly with the content of their, their message. I said, yes, absolutely. I, I, I think Alcoholics Anonymous is a good program. It helps people recover and restore their lives. But that's for somebody else. Because don't you know, I'm a, a member of the provincial police and I'm a professional. And how could I possibly be an alcoholic? And that's that was my introduction into it. I remember, um, uh, I think it was, let me... Let me get my math straight here. So it was 1991, October 10th. Actually, my my uh, my sobriety date's coming up in a few days. October 10th, 1991. Um, I was in a I, like I went to the classy places. I went to the Waverly Hotel. I stayed at the Shoreline Hotel, and I'm talking like real classy, like uh, wood paneling on the uh, on the walls, um, shag carpet on on the floors. You lie in a mattress and you sink, and I mean sink right down to the floor, uh, like the real classy places. As long as you didn't breathe and didn't stink too bad, um, and that 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 was uh, what happened to me. And I remember uh, those guys showing up, those three guys from Galbi, and uh, they're in nice clothes and they're clean. And they said, "Hey, man, get ready. You got to have a shower right now. Get up." And I'm like, "What? What's going on?" We got to go to a meeting. I said, meeting? What meeting? Just get ready. Let's go. And I remember they they pushed me in the shower, humiliated me, got me cleaned up, dressed out the door into, uh, they had a big old Suburban with a, you know, the old Suburbans had the big two bench seats, one in front, one in the back. And I remember uh, Gene literally almost putting me in an arm bar and putting me between him and Mike and they were in the front seats and Sam jumping in behind me like, Okay, guys, I'm in the I'm in the vehicle. I'm not going anywhere. Like, don't worry about it. And that was my introduction to my first meeting. And I remember looking at a couple of guys saying, "Oh shit, I arrested that guy." And oh, I dealt with that guy too. And you know, they're all snickering and laughing at me. Yeah. Well, you were <laughs> you were just uh, talk about you were brought down to not down. You were you were put down to their level because of your drinking. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I still believe that, uh, 
you know, I'm even in spite of my, my recovery, in spite of that experience, I'm not, I'm not any better or higher or lower than anybody else. Yep. It's just, it's just different, uh, varying degrees of, of experiences, That's right? Much better way of putting it. Yes. Yeah. And, so, uh, I, I you was, know, I still, I still subject myself to those meetings yep. and, uh, I still, uh, offer up my advice and my help whenever I can. And it's amazing because I actually learn a few things when a newcomer comes along in those circles and tells me about their experience out in the world uh, during, um, you know, their excesses and uses of substance and, and alcohol. Yep. And uh, I got to tell you, it's not getting any better out there by any means. Yeah. And, and you just said a truism that I 100% firmly believe that there has never been any good ending to a story that started off with, I found myself in a bar. <laughs> but, but, um, so, and, and guys, I may be 100% wrong in my math here, but you're coming up on 29 years sober. Is that's that, right. 29 yeah, years of continuous sobriety. Wow. That's fantastic. And, and that's actually this so that in and of itself is a huge achievement. Everything else you've also has done, these have just been amazing milestones for you. And one of the other things that you do because of a lot of this in your upbringing and how things were, you actually counsel young young men that have gone through challenging times like this too. Maybe talk about that a bit. So um, it's probably a little more recent in, in my story, in my yeah. history, that um, the guy that I'm working with now, so in AA we have what we call sponsors, and uh, keep in mind, Alcoholics Anonymous is still that. It's supposed to be anonymous, but uh, we're a close-knit bunch here on Russell Westcott's podcast. So <laughs> I'm considering this all part of our we're small... We're all family. We're family. <laughs> yeah, we're all family here. So I'm, I'm going to speak freely about this. Um, I met uh, uh, the person that I'm working with right now. And if I mentioned his name, you would say that guy is an absolute giant from Bay Street uh, in Toronto. And uh, he is. <laughs> Um, and I'm fortunate that I get to be in that circle, but what he brought, which was absolutely valuable to my life and to my family's life was, uh, a, a version of the 12 steps and 12 step work that actually does require you to uh, engage and study and read and inventory yourself and your feelings and, uh, your defects and, and do all that kind of work. And, um, <clears throat> that study came from Lamana Oaks, which is a, a suburb of uh, Chicago, Illinois. And uh, it came from his sponsor, who was one of, uh, who was tied in with uh, the original founders of the organization of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, we've been doing that study for the last, last uh, oh my goodness, probably six, seven years now. And uh, I try to bring in people that uh, are struggling with maintaining, not only maintaining their sobriety, but, uh, struggling with, uh, struggling with, uh, you know, getting out of their own head and getting away from being, uh, restless and discontented and, uh, completely unsatisfied with their surroundings and their lifestyle. Because, uh, one of the things I think that the original founding members realized was that if it was just about sobriety, like, give me a break, like, you know, who would want to engage in a program like that? Um, the true essence of the program is this ongoing idea of uh, constantly growing and personally developing yourself by doing this 12 steps 
and reconnecting uh, with a, a power greater than yourself. I choose to call him God and, uh, you know, continually working on my inventory, you know, clearing away the wreckage of the past and, uh, you know, sharing that message with others and, and bringing them into the study and helping them to personally grow and develop. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jules, you know, I knew when I first reached out to you to want to have this conversation and tell this story, I knew this was going to be a deep, a deep end of the pool and a, and a big onion to unravel, not calling you an onion. I'm just saying there's lots of, (laughs) there's lots of layers, lots of layers. There's there's a few layers. No doubt about it. And, and as if guys, here's the thing. And I, I, I do want to talk about your fitness before we end off here too. But but as deep as Jules's story is on his backstory leading up to this, just wait till you hear about his real estate experience. There is some things that'll put hair on your head and <laughs> and some situations that you got into and some um, ways that you've gotten out of it. And just, you know, Jules, I, for the next one, I want you to find the photo album, if you could. Oh, too. yes. Yes, please find that. Okay, I want- so- yeah, we just moved, so I'll yeah. have to dig around and, and dig that up. But yes. I, I, I do have it, and yeah. I will find it. And, and guys, that's just in, in the business. That's called a tease to make sure you listen or watch the next one is the, the photo album uh, Jules has and how much how much money he's raised by this photo album. So, yeah. But we are going to do another one, 100% committed to do a next one. But before we end off here today, Jules, um, fitness, you've, you've – how old are you now, Jules? If you don't mind 52. Asking. 52. So you've literally transformed your body in your fifties. Have you not? Yes, I have. Yeah. Like what, what, what's, what's the, what's the secret? If there is a what secret. Is the deal what is, on that? What's the I know. deal, Jules? I was, um, I was probably a, um, before I joined uh, CrossFit, I was, uh, hovering around 275, uh, 265 when I was, when I was trying to run and, and lose the weight that way. But, uh, I think it was around 2010, 20, 2011, I had uh, uh, severe knee, knee pain, uh, likely caused by my diet and lack of exercise. And uh, I had knee surgeries uh, about a year apart where they did orthoscopic surgery and removed uh, uh, the back half of my meniscus in my left knee. And uh, on my right knee, my meniscus literally came out in that uh, tube that they uh, stick in your knee to do the knee surgery. And, uh, shortly after that, my, my, my knee joints just, uh, continually deteriorated. And, uh, I did a couple of marathons, uh, half marathons that is just to, uh, I guess, prove to myself or try to prove to the world that I could still do it. I, I, I don't really know, but, uh, it was definitely an ego driven thing. And, uh, I joined uh, CrossFit shortly after that. And, uh, during that period, I, I struggled. I got sick in the bathroom. Um, I dropped things on the floor that I'm not supposed to drop. I fell off equipment that I'm not supposed to fall off of and uh, just completely did everything wrong. And I remember talking to my coach about this. I said, well, what do I do? He said, well, you're going to have to change everything. I said, change everything about what? Everything about everything. And uh, didn't fully understand it. Um, interestingly enough, um, you know, they say that uh, when the students ready, the teacher will appear. And there was a medicine man that came in from the Owen Sound area, First Nation out there. I cannot remember the name of it, but he uh, came in and uh, he was in Rama doing the teaching. 
and we could have one-on-one time with him. And uh, I put myself down on the list to go speak to him about my health because that was his background. He was a medicine man for your, your, not your, just your spiritual health, but your physical health. And I remember going in and, and he was everything you could conjure up of a medicine man. He had a, he had a, a moose hide coat on with beading and embroidery. He had uh, feathers on, the, on his hat. Uh, he was sitting um, on a floor on a blanket and there was uh, sage and sweet grass burning, like everything you could conjure up about a traditional uh, indigenous medicine man. And I sat down, I, had, I struggled to sit down across from him. And then he looked at me and he says, um, so you're here obviously because you have bad knees. And I said, yes, sir, that's, that's why I'm here. And he says, have you thought about uh, the fact that you probably shouldn't drink milk? Have you thought about the fact that maybe your system is not uh, responding well to carbohydrates, highly refined flours, uh, breads and pastas, and maybe you shouldn't eat those kind of things. And I was just completely poof, like mind blown. It's like, really? Like, uh, that's what my problem is. And I told him about the knee surgeries and whatnot. And he says, you know, if I, if I was you, I would probably be looking into uh, a non-carbohydrate built diet and uh, I would look at losing some weight and, uh, you know, more or less sent me away <laughs> with a completely, you know, changed outlook on this. I started uh, researching my wife at the time, my wife at the time. You were, I, you were researching wife. your wife? <laughs> uh, she, she was looking at uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Berg. Uh, Eric Berg is a, is a doctor who does YouTube videos. And he was talking about this thing called the ketogenic diet. Yep. I also got a book um, about uh, the ketogenic diet. Uh, the, the book's called The Obesity Code by uh, Dr. Jason Fung. He's out of uh, he's a um, a diabetes doctor out of Toronto. And I started learning about these things. And uh, I guess it would have been mm, probably late 2018, early 2019. I, I, I swore off carbohydrates, stopped eating bread, stopped drinking milk. And uh, just made a radical change to my diet. Um, I did struggle with going on and going off and going on and going off. And uh, I knew I had to get away from this mindless eating. So I went to a place called uh, Aurelia Sports Medicine. And I what was that uh, again, sir? For me, what was the name again? Aurelia Sports Aurelia, Medicine. Okay. Yep. And uh, got hooked up with uh, Dr. Jason uh, Poor. And he's a counselor and a chiropractor and an all around, uh, just a, uh, just a technician of all things, exercise, fitness, and diet. And, uh, I, I was counseled by him to adopt, uh, the, uh, ketogenic diet. And that's when things really started turning around for me. Yep. Um, I started to be able to have uh, good mobility in my knees. I was able to uh, sleep better at night. And, uh, the intermittent fasting piece, I didn't really speak about, but, uh, that's the, the real key thing that has changed, uh, my life. Um, it, it's all good now. Like it, it, it really is. Yeah. And, uh, and guys, if you ever want to, where's the best place someone like I, I follow Jules on, on, on some of the social channels and, and it's just like, he, he, 
in a very gently polite way, puts it out there when he does his workouts and I've sit there and I'm sitting there having a plate of nachos or something. And I see Jules do it. Okay. Get <laughs> off the couch, Russell, get working out again. Right. It's like, it's uh, like you, you just lead by example. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, it, you know, really 90% of it is just showing up. Yeah. You know, if, if you're part, if you're uh, tied in with, uh, with a good uh, circle and sphere of influence, like uh, 90% of it is just showing up because they're going to help you and guide you through it anyway. Like I, I still work out with the same, same folks at CrossFit Exhilarate. Yep. And uh, you know, my coach has helped me quite a bit. Um, he's probably about 30 years younger than me, but you know, he's still my coach and I look up to him in terms of uh, training and fitness and uh, helping me to, to uh, increase my physical fitness and stamina. And it's, it's been working out really yeah. well. And, and what are, what are you weighing now? And not that weight is the only measurement, but what are you, what are you at now? So uh, right now I hover around 225 pounds. Yep. That's, that's the weight I was at when I joined the provincial police way back in November of 1989. Yep. And, uh, there are times like, uh, you know, Christmas is Christmas, right? Yep. So I might go up to 230 pounds. Yep. And then there are other times where, you know, I may have a goal in mind or, um, I'm still competing in, uh, I'm still competing with, uh, kids They're not kids. I mean, they're, they're adults, but I'm competing with, uh, with 25, 29 year olds, uh, in no, the, they're, uh, kids. Men- they're kids. Yeah. They're kids. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I might have a competition coming up where I, I drop my weight right down. The lightest I've been is 217, which is a little too light. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, it, it goes up, it comes down. Um, well, would you, honestly, consider, would you consider that you're in your best health of your life in your 50s? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, even, absolutely. Even then when uh, you were a younger, a younger person, right? Yeah, I wish I would have found this 20, 30 years ago, Russell, but, yeah. you know, I didn't. Better, and, better uh, late than I'm going to make the most of it every day that I have uh, from here on in. Yeah, wow, crazy. I was just trying to keep up with all the things that we were talking about. So we talked about racism and bullying and being socially awkward and life without electricity and running water and leaving the reservation and hatred and overcoming obstacles and substance abuse and mentoring other people, health, becoming a new person. Holy moly, Jules! Like, like who's gonna play? Who's gonna play you in the movie about you? Oh my goodness, that would be that'd be awesome. Eh? Maybe uh, maybe Ben Affleck. <laughs> oh yeah, there you go, there you go. He's probably <laughs> you know you know might the but the real answer. There's only one person that can play the Jules McKenzie story, and that's Jules McKenzie. That's right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's the only person that's worthy of playing that deep of a role. So, so guys, so uh, Jules and I are going to make another appointment to do this because I do, I want to be 100% respectful and we could, honest to goodness, we could talk for another three hours and you never know, we (laughs) might be a three or four part series. Uh, But guys, what we're going to do is uh, we are going to do a quick reset. And by the magic of when you're probably going to be listening or watching, it'll be so seamless, but Jules and I are going to make another time to record a second episode. So before we sign off here in this first one, Jules, do you have any final, uh, maybe give some contact information. And if you have a final message you'd like to leave with everyone here and also give them a little tease on what we're going to learn in the real estate chapter of your life. So um, my Instagram is McKenzie.Jules. So I'll spell that for the listeners. It's M-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E dot 
J-U-L-E-S. Yep. So I, I post a lot of my uh, show-off uh, CrossFit workouts there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm also on LinkedIn, Jules McKenzie, very simply J-U-L-E-S-M-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E. And I'm yep. also under the same name, which is mine, on Facebook. Um, on Twitter, I'm uh, at Mr. Jules McKenzie, uh, spelt uh, the symbol at M-R-J-U-L-E-S-M-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E. And you can also direct message me on those if you really need to speak to me about uh, investing or uh, recovery or uh, doing uh, 12-step improvement work on yourself. Uh, fitness, uh, exercise questions. I'm happy to, to discuss it all. Absolutely. And, and and you also know a thing or two about real estate too, don't you? I know a couple of <laughs> things about that one. <laughs> well, yeah. just for perspective, Jules, how many properties have you transacted up to this point? And just for ballpark for people, for your for some perspective on what we're going to cover next on your real estate chapter. So as far as transaction goes, um, Far too many to mention at one point in our investing career. And I mean, our, because Ange and I have been, we've been together on this. Uh, we've had over 55 plus properties in our portfolio. Uh, as of late, we have been liquidating assets because it's the right time for us. And, uh, you know, we're hovering around, uh, 14, 16 properties. Uh, there's a couple of properties I don't really count as mine, uh, I helped my son and his girlfriend purchase their first duplex that they're living in. So they have the ultimate house hack. I just let them, uh, I let them, I helped them uh, refinance their uh, property in, um, <laughs> sorry, the dog's barking. Nope, I helped them refinance their property just before COVID in, in uh, February of uh, 20, 2020. And they went from an interest rate, a high interest rate of 6.84 to uh, 3.14. So they're essentially living uh, mortgage and uh, insurance and taxes free. Yep. And uh, they got their serve on top of that because they were both laid off. <laughs> and um, I just helped my daughter purchase the neighboring property to this property um, because it was just the right time, yep. the right time and the right thing to do. So uh, she's on mortgage and title over there. And it's a duplex and she just rented out the basement to a nice young couple. And um, she's rented out to two bedrooms. She lives in the three bedroom upstairs. So, you know, she's got the ultimate house hack going as well. Yeah. And, so and there's, we're, we're definitely going to talk more about that in yeah. our next episode. And I'm also going to talk about uh, this, this uh, introverted, uh, naturally inclined to keep to himself person about sales and marketing and how to, you know, learn some skills to, to help build your real estate portfolio. Yeah. And, and we're going to make a commitment to share the bad, the good, the bad, and the ugly, aren't we? Oh yes, yeah. absolutely. Cause there is some, there's some, there's some things that'll, that'll guys that, you know, it'll all come from a place of learning and education, but there'll be a lot of, uh, don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right on. So Jules, you know, um, I'll save a, a formal sign off on the, the next episode we're going to do, but I do want to just leave you with something as every time we do have an opportunity, just where you, where you come from, how you show up, you always show up as a person that comes from uh, love and encouragement and inspiration. And I'm a very fortunate person to have got to know you all those years ago. And I can't wait to see what the next version of Jules is. Not that the first one has been amazing, but I, I honestly, Jules, I, I, this is coming from the heart. I honestly think you're just getting started in developing your role as a leader within the community. You haven't even, you haven't even begun to discover 
how, how much you have to offer other people. Well, thank you, Russell. And I, and I really attribute that to uh, great mentorship from people such as yourself. Yeah. Well, with that being said, guys, uh, through the magic of technology, you probably will be going right to the next one. But uh, Jules and I are going to record the next one and we will talk to everybody soon. Bye for now. Wow. Crazy, crazy story. So what did you think? Uh, did you guys get some incredible insights into um, of, of a person's upbringing? How our upbringing shapes our future destinations? Our, how our upbringing shapes our destiny in life? But here's the cool thing. If you actually got the, one of the messages in here, is your destination is not set by your upbringing. Your destination is not predetermined for you. The destination that you choose is of your choices, is of the different decisions you make. Jules could have very easily chose to maybe be like many of his friends and many of the other people that he grew up around, made completely different choices, and he, you know, would have maybe become a statistic in the system. But he chose something different. He took a personal accountability. He took extreme ownership to his situation. He made changes. He had some family commitment. He made commitment to the commitment. He changed his environment. He changed his lot in life. And he did it one decision at a time. Okay, guys. So I sure hope you guys enjoyed. You know, I do one of these things when I do a lot of these podcast interviews. One of the reasons why I do these is um, because I'm a fan of the person that I'm interviewing. There's an awful lot of this in the podcast world of, you know, people going, well, I'll go on your podcast, you come on my podcast, and they're only doing it for just distribution reasons and stuff like that. One of the reasons why I do these podcasts is because I want to connect with good friends and I also want to share a deeper message. I want to share a deeper story to help you inspire you along the process. So I know most of the people probably listening to my podcast are going to be real estate investors. But at the end of the day, we're all humans. We're all human beings on this earth, all on the same journey together. And more importantly, you can get tacticals, you can get the how-tos, you can get all those information, you can get that on my YouTube, you can get that everywhere. But sometimes I just want to, especially in podcast format, I just want to take a little deeper dive into the person, a little deeper dive into the people behind the real estate investors, because it's more important about who you become in the process of becoming a successful real estate investor. Okay, guys, I'll get off my little soapbox here, maybe a little preachy preachy, but it is important that you take as much time and effort in your personal development of who you are as you do in your tactical skill set development as a real estate investor. So that's one of my goals within this podcast is to give a little bit of a glimpse into the people behind the investor. All right, so make sure you subscribe, make sure you leave some feedback. And the next episode, part two, where we go into the real estate tactical side and to the real estate how-tos, and we get into a lot more of the real estate. You think he had some overcoming, he, you think, let me try that one more time. You think he had to overcome some obstacles in his upbringing. Just wait to hear some of the stories we share about his, the good, bad, and the ugly of the real estate investing side of things. So guys, make sure you subscribe, make sure you leave some feedback. And always remember, I probably am going to say this about four times in these different episodes, and it's okay. Always remember, guys, in every interaction you have with another person, always, always leave them feeling inspired, encouraged, and always come from a place of love. Okay, guys, bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Russell Westcott Podcast. Before you run off, could you do us one final favor? 
Wherever you're listening to this episode, we encourage you to leave a review, share with your friends, and subscribe so you can receive the latest episode to keep you feeling inspired and encouraged for the entire week. Visit www.russellwestcott.com for more information, support resources, and upcoming speaking engagements near you. Bye for now.